0: Good morning. If you are at home, we are uh, glad you are tuning in this morning. And uh, if you are here, you are officially the frozen chosen. I'm just kidding. Uh, We are going to be looking at uh, Romans 9 this morning. I was going to finish this uh, this week, but we're going to take our time. We're in no hurry. We've got till June-ish Uh, to finish Romans, so I thought we'd kind of sit in this passage for a couple more weeks. But I want to start with this illustration, and if I've used it before, no qualifiers, no apologies, I'm just going to use it again. Um, But I I had another illustration, I thought, that doesn't work as good as this illustration. I want you to imagine a young 30-something-year-old campus minister on a very tight budget, who is sitting in the British Virgin Islands. As a matter of fact, not just the British Virgin Islands, not the popular ones, but this little bitty island called Anagata. It has like two restaurants on it. When you come up on your sailboat, it's like out of a scene of the Chronicles of Narnia. You can see all the way to the bottom. You can see fish swimming. It is absolutely beautiful. But imagine this 31-year-old Broke campus minister sitting at a table with the finest of lobster just caught from the ocean, not like shipped in, and these the best, the best wooden bowls of green beans I've ever tasted in my life. And I don't even like green beans. Full of butter. In this scene of the sun going down, perfect weather with a bunch of other people eating like a king. Now how did this 31-year-old broke campus minister with a wife and five small children get there? It's because of a man named Keith Berger. You don't know Keith Berger, but Keith Berger every year would organize these sailing trips to the British Virgin Islands for people who could afford it. I had just talked to Keith Berger on the phone. We talked monthly, and I had just caught up with him and heard all about this fascinating, beautiful trip that they were taking and that I could never, ever afford to go on. Two days later, I get a call from Keith Berger. And I pick up the phone, and I said, who dropped out? He said, you're not kidding. Do you want to go? I said, "Um, yes, let me talk to my wife. He said, you've got to get to the Atlanta airport tomorrow by four in the morning. I immediately hung up the phone. I went home and I walked in and I said, babe, could you sit down for a minute? She said, nope. What is it? And I said, Keith Berger called. And she said the most famous, beautiful word she could ever say in the history of our marriage in this instance. Go. I was in the British Virgin Islands for free because Keith Berger chose me. Do you feel that? That's what we are looking at In Romans chapter 9. And as every song that we sang had the same theme, and I know Dallas thinks about these and choosing these, but they really all fit. Basically, they're what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is saying. This beautiful grace and mercy and comfort from the God of all what? Mercies. You receive that comfort and that mercy comfort others with it. We are going to see that all through chapter 9. Today we are looking at, yes, the doctrine of election, but more specifically, we are looking at the doctrine of God's mercy. We are just going to read verses 14 through 18, so join with me please as I read. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on I whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and then there's this little phrase he hardens whomever he wills let's pray god thank you for your word yes it was written by people but These people were chosen by you and given your Holy Spirit to work through their particular personalities and gifts, but to write down what we believe according to what you say about the Bible, everything exactly how you want it to be said, even the hard stuff. Uh, Let us not avoid the hard stuff. Uh, Let us not um, ignore it, but let us understand it. And God, where there are things in the Bible that we just can't comprehend because they are according to your purpose and your secret counsel, let us throw up our hands not in frustration, but in praise of a God who thankfully is greater than us. And Lord, unto the end that you would have us understand and be transformed by Your for your sake and for our sake. Amen. My wife and I got to a movie this week and we saw a movie you may have heard of called Boys in the Boat. And it's about this rowing crew, fascinating uh, movie in the uh, mid-1930s, sort of post-Depression. But it's these, they're at the University of Washington, and there's this sort of A-team rowing crew who's going to compete and do all these wonderful things, but they need a JV team. And so they put out word that anyone can come to be chosen for the JV team. So probably a hundred or so people show up and they do two weeks of this physical fitness and rowing and all of this work. And at the very end, there's this scene where the coach says, okay, thank you for all being here. Thank you for doing all this work, but only eight of you are going to be chosen. Now, the question is, why does the coach choose those eight people? It was because they were stronger They were mentally stronger, they were more fit, they were more buff, and they rode better, and they had more potential. And when we get to the doctrine of what is historically called election or predestination being chosen, we tend to kind of take that framework and put it on God and say, (coughs) excuse me, my cough is back by the way, thank you, it's not contagious, I promise you. Um, but we tend to put that framework on God and say, is that how you choose people? You just look and you say, well, I want him and I want her and I want them and, and it's because of how great they are. Or maybe it's not even because of how great they are. I just, I'm just going to choose sort of randomly. And, and it, it kind of leads to this question that if you're honest, does God play favorites? Is that fair? And is God unjust? That is the question Paul is dealing with today. Last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, I'd encourage you to go back and listen because these are four questions that Paul fits together. But last week, we looked at this, this problem of this people of privilege that God had given all these privileges to, and what did they do with them? They they did not recognize the whole point of the privilege is Jesus. They rejected Jesus. We said that God's chosen people, in a sense, chose not Jesus did not choose him. People of the covenant rejected the God of the covenant for the most part. And the question Paul dealt with last week is: did God's plan fail? Is God, can he do what he wants to do? Is God strong enough to do that? Did he go from plan A to plan B? And the answer was again an emphatic no. God has always had a plan A and it's continuing. It is his purpose, his decree. And God has always had a people, even if it's just within his people, but he's always had a people, and that plan and people have always included the Gentiles, one plan, one people. And so today we are getting at another question about this that comes up from verses 13 and 14. Verse 14, Paul says, is God unjust? So where does this question come from? It comes from the previous discussion of Isaac and Ishmael. Where, where Paul says God, yes, He blessed Ishmael in many ways, and he, he showed mercy to Ishmael, and even made a nation out of Ishmael. But He chose Isaac, and then you get into Jacob and Esau, and and Paul goes even further back, and he, and he quotes Genesis, and he says, Well, you know, God said the older will serve the younger. So God is arranging it in such a way where He chooses Jacob over the natural selection, so to speak, of Esau. Why does God do this? And that leads again to verse 14. Is God unjust? And, and get this, because next week we're, it's going to be a little switch, but if you have questions about the Bible, if you have questions about this doctrine, if you have questions about why your friends at school don't choose you, you can ask those questions. Those are good questions. Fair questions. The Bible is full of questions. Ask, please. Like we said last week, ask Murray and Tony. But here's the question today Is God unjust? And here's Paul's answer two points. One, we are actually unjust. And secondly, God is not unjust, God is merciful. The first is this, we are unjust. And I want to be very clear here, this is sort of a big picture backing out and spreading the camera out so that you can see a bigger view of the whole book of Romans. It's more of a systematic answer from Romans. And the answer to the question in verse 14, what shall we sin, is there injustice on God's part? if you take all of Romans together and you look at the examples He gives you, the answer is first of all, we are unjust. Now what I mean by this is not this. When Romans in the Bible speak about the condition of humanity, the Bible does not say we are as bad as we could be. It says that everyone is made in God's image. It's a distorted image. It's a broken image. But it does not mean that man and woman boys and girls, men and women, are not capable of good in some general way. But what it does say is that we are born in a condition that when it relates to God, we are going in the opposite direction. We are not moving toward God. We are not seeking God. We are moving away from God. I know I'm competing with the nursery today. We are glad you're here with your kids if they're making racket. I want to be very clear about that. Every one of you that are here, thank you for being here. But look, when we get to this question, it's fascinating to me as we go back and we look at Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and then Pharaoh today, if we lump everybody together and we go, well, that's not fair. This is what we're doing. We're assuming the wrong way. We're assuming the wrong thing. We give people a pass. Think about it Jacob and Esau. What do we do? We give Esau a pass. Well, why didn't Esau get chosen? We even give Pharaoh a pass. And if you know anything about Esau and you know anything about Pharaoh, they were not good people. Esau sold his birthright for a, for a bowl of stew. He married women that he knew would anger his parents. Pharaoh, just read about Pharaoh. He had God's people in slavery oppressed them. Power abuse that would have podcasts and articles written on it today. But the question still remains, why Jacob or the Israelites? And the answer is clearly not because they were better. This is not a boys in the boat. I'm picking the good ones, the strong ones, the moral ones, the upright ones. We said this last week about Jacob. What do we know about Jacob? Jacob was a scoundrel. What do we know about Israel? They were a bunch of scoundrels. I'm not trying to be hard on God's people. I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm trying to be honest. Israel was known for grumbling, murmuring, rebellion, lawlessness, and idolatry, and occasionally some good stuff. That's what we know about Israel. So listen to verse 16. Listen to how Paul says it it does not depend on human will or exertion, effort. It doesn't matter how much you try, he is saying. Look at verse 11, back up to last week's passage. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. God does not choose people, in other words, because they're choosable. That's how we choose people. That's how we choose our friends, people that we like or get along with or have the same interests. That's even in some ways how we choose our spouse. You don't choose people you don't like to marry, right? But you learn later that you have a hard time liking each other. Sometimes you need to get help. And that's okay to be honest about that. And you don't like it when you're left out and not chosen, right? God doesn't choose us because we're choosable. Remember last week we said there are two misunderstandings that are very common about the Old Testament. One was Old Testament people were plan A, New Testament people, plan B. That's not true. Never was. The second misunderstanding was this. People in the Old Testament were saved by works, by their goodness. People in the New Testament are saved by grace. Not true. Never was. Never will be. People in the Old Testament were saved by grace. People in the New Testament are saved by grace. The point is this. We're not choosable. No one he mentions here is choosable. We are all, what Romans 1 through 3 has said, running in the wrong direction. Before we can talk about God being just, we have to establish that. Paul's already established it. But we need to reestablish it because sometimes as we're Christians, we move away from that. We need to come back to that. That we are running in the wrong direction. My brother-in-law let me borrow a book about hikers getting lost in the Smokies. Fascinating book. Great stories. Really they weren't. But it really, really were good stories. And this is what happens. These are all experienced hikers. They're competent. They know what they're doing. They're prepared because they have to go in and they have to sign in with the rangers. And the rangers know where they are and they know where they're going to be. These aren't just like me going to Walmart and getting something. I'm going to go hiking today. These are people that know what they're doing. And then something happens. Maybe it's bad weather. Uh, Maybe one walks out in front of the rest and kind of gets in la-la land and turns around and doesn't see his friends and starts psychologically freaking out. You can understand how this could happen. And the next thing you know, they're lost. Plenty of food, plenty of water, maps, compasses, healthy. And very often when they found them, guess what? They were all on a trail. Not all of them. Some of them were terrible stories. We won't talk about those. But the ones that they found alive were often on a trail. But do you know what the problem was? They were all going in the wrong direction. That's simply what it means to be lost. We are not seeking God. See if God were just, no one would be saved. No one would be saved if God does not choose to save sinners. And you know what this means, how freeing this is? That word in verse 16 for exertion, you know what it means, vigorous activity like a real internal sense of I've got to get this done. I don't mean a free sense of I've got to, you know, like the the chariots of fire guy running the race, he just feels the presence of God and the delight of God. Not that, the opposite of that. This is someone who does not feel the delight of God and thinks I've got to please God by doing vigorous action. Do you know what the word repentance means? It means to turn. This is why holiness and obedience and all those beautiful words are not a checklist. They're directional. It means you were running this way and God finds you, you were lost, and He turns you and He puts you on the right direction and you start moving this way. And this is what's so freeing about grace and about God chasing after you. God finding you. God choosing you is this. It's not about you making any effort. He turns you. He puts you in the right direction. Is there effort involved once you're on that path? Absolutely. But let me tell you what sin is. Sin is when you say, I'm going to turn away from Christ and turn back to my effort. That undermines all and undergirds all of our sin. But for a Christian, this is what's beautiful. This is what's freeing. You are never truly ever going to go back that way if you're really being held by Christ. You're always going in this direction. As one of my friends says, yes, sometimes you stop the car and you might get out and you might even move into that swamp over there. But you're still going in this direction. Get back in the car. Get back in the car. And yes, sometimes, like Lot's wife, you want to look back, go in the right direction. But it's never about our exertion in this sense. That's not what saves us. That's the first point. Just a summary, systematic thing, okay? Secondly, here's the big point of this text we are unjust. We would never seek God if He did not seek us. God is merciful. This this blew me away again. When you come to Scripture and you try to sit under it versus kind of bringing your ideas upon it and you just spend time with it, this blew me away. Paul asked the question in verse 14. Look at it again. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And now what he does is he gives you a book on the doctrine of election and says, study that, let's talk about it. He doesn't do that. He sends you a link to a YouTube channel of someone debating election and free will. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to explain election. When he gets to that question next week, just wait till what he says. That's going to blow you away too. His answer is nothing we'd have ever thought of. His answer is this. Did God's plan fail last week? No. Is God unjust? No. Here's the answer. You ready? God is merciful. God is merciful. And we see this in two things. The people He chooses and the people He uses. Look at the people He chooses. Look again at verses 14 through 16. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. When I went to that, you know what I thought it said? I thought it was going to say, for some reason I remember this because I forget things all the time. I thought it was going to say, I have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. And I'm going to judge those I want to judge. That's not what it says. That's kind of what we wanted to say. That's not what it says. He's emphasizing God's mercy in the people he chooses. How do we know that? Because this quote is from Exodus chapter 32. And remember, we brought this up last week. The context of Exodus 32 and 33 is the golden calf. Anyone feel that in their head or heart? You wonder if God is merciful to you, and you wonder if He's finally going to give you His justice. Anybody ever struggle with that? That's the contest that we see in Exodus 32 and 33. Let me summarize how this story goes. And I put a lot of time into summarizing this, so I hope it really goes well. Once again, Moses, the man of God, the representative of God, goes up the mountain to see God, to hear from God, to see God's glory, to get God's good instruction in how to love God and how to love your neighbor. It should be a shining moment in the life of Israel, right? But what happens? We talked about this last week. The people sort of get what they want and they look at Aaron, the co leader, Lord, you know, the second in command, and they say, Hey, get up, make us gods, right? Like we had back in Egypt. We don't know what's become of this Moses guy. Aaron says once again, Okay, throw in your gold, get this calf, and then he says, Here's your God. They build an altar for it, they throw a feast. And then God says to Moses, Get down there. They are corrupt. They've turned aside. See that language again? They've turned aside. They're stiff necked. My wrath is going to burn hot against them, and I'll make a new nation out of you, Moses. But what does Moses do? The man of God, the intercessor, he pleads with God. He says, well, what will Egypt say? They will think you're a god just like their gods. Turn from your burning anger. Relent. In fact, do it because of what you said to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember your promises, God. Have you forgotten those? So sort of this contest is going on. What's going to win? And then Moses goes down the mountain and he forgets about mercy. He sees what's going on. You know, you heard, you heard your kids made a mess at home, and then you get home, and you see it, right? And he's like, oh, man, his anger is burning red hot. This is all in the Bible, by the way. He throws the tablets down, gives the business to Aaron. Aaron makes excuses. He says, Whoa, well, I don't know what happened. Just out popped this calf, right? And then Moses executes some wrath. 3,000 people die. God seems to confirm it. He said they've sinned a great sin, and then He sends a plague. And He says to Moses, you go on in, I'm not going with you. And then Moses, something wells up in him that is greater than wrath. This, as we said last week, is when he asked to be blotted out instead of the people of God. This is where God, or Moses, looks at God and he says, Would your substitutionary love appeal? Take me, let them go free. He pleads for God's favor and he pleads for God's presence. In a word, he pleads for mercy, And then the verse we have in verse 15, which is, out of God's mouth, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. See, the emphasis here is not that God chooses Israel or part of Israel because one of them are better. They are a stiff-necked people. But God, in a moment where there's a contest between judgment and mercy, chooses to show mercy, to be gracious. Something in God wells up that is greater than judgment. Something prevails in God, so to speak. And what Moses heard from God and what Paul reiterates is this, God chooses to show mercy on the unjust. When push comes to shove, my prevailing characteristic is mercy. And it is seen where primarily? In the people that God chooses. Secondly, the people that He uses. Verse 17, Pharaoh. Look at verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see what he's saying here? If you know the Bible and you know the Old Testament, you kind of know that God wrote, you know, raised up Pharaoh and he used Pharaoh, but we kind of almost think of that mechanically, right? To just benefit his people or whatever. But it literally says this in, in, in the original language. I have made you stand. Pharaoh, I have put you center stage in history for a purpose. And what is the purpose? Look at this. That I might show my power in you. He doesn't even say through you first. He says in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see what you see what Paul's saying? Even in God showing mercy to the Israelites, he also is raising up this this secular leader, the greatest leader of his time, the greatest troublemaker of his time, of that time. And he says, Pharaoh, I want you to see something about me. I want you, through my power, in delivering this botching it people, to see my mercy. And I want the world to see it. I want the entire earth to see it. Do you know what one of the things that we as Christians get mixed up the quickest is we think the earth needs to see God's judgment more. That's what's going to do it. And God may use that. God may use all of that. But ultimately, What your non-Christian friends need to see is mercy. And power through mercy. Okay, Fritz, close the sermon or deal with that last tricky verse. Verse 18. I would love it to stop right there in the middle. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. God is merciful, he's loving, he's unbelievably beautiful and gracious. Let's close in prayer. But what's he do? He throws in that little phrase that, to be honest, only Reformed people really like to struggle with. And I'm glad you struggle with it. That says something about you. It's wonderful. He hardens whomever he wills. And again, like I said last week, there are people that don't want to deal with this. We want to skip over this. We just have happy little sermons. Go be good people. That's not what we're supposed to do in the church. We're not just supposed to love God and avoid hard doctrine. We're not just to love hard doctrine and avoid people, right? But, but we've got to deal with it because it's in the Bible. What's, what's the big deal? What's going on here? God hardens somebody's heart? Thankfully, there are other writers and commentators throughout history that we get to lean on. And leaning on them, this is what I relearned this week. Yes, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But more importantly, Pharaoh's heart was already hard. If you go back and you actually read about the 10 plagues, five times in the first five plagues, it says something like this. His heart was hard. His heart was hard. His heart remained hard. He would not listen. He did not take it to heart. Pharaoh wasn't innocent. Pharaoh wasn't neutral. You know, it wasn't like here and here and Pharaoh was right in the middle and just kind of needed to move on. Pharaoh had a hard heart. He was resisting God from the get-go. Five times God keeps saying, bro, you and your gods aren't going to work. Watch this. Boom. Okay, okay, I get it. Please do, you know, change things. Then he hardened his heart. You see that. He did not take it to heart. Respite would come. He'd harden his heart. The first time you hear about God hardening Pharaoh's heart is in the sixth plague. It's just like Romans 1 says, God, eventually, if we resist God and we worship other gods and we say, I don't want anything to do with you, God's going to give you what you ask for. One writer said this, Nowhere does God harden anyone who has not hardened themselves first. Let me try to illustrate this. I reached out to a chemical engineer in our church. Arn, I think that's what you are if I'm wrong, sorry. But the other day, you know, we've got these hoses and I use these aluminum and metal hoses and the little things that go on the faucet. And they sit on there all summer, right? And then it gets fall and you use your hose and they sit on there. And then winter sets in, and you're like, oh, I need to take my hoses off, put those little styrofoam things on there, right? Well, I go to get the hose off, and it's even got this little gadget on it that's supposed to make it easier. I can't turn it for anything. And I try, and I try, and very delightful, nice words come out of my mouth as I'm doing This is lovely. Enjoy this. So I go get a special wrench. And it, the special thing on it is plastic, by the way, which was not a good design. But I put the wrench on it, and of course what starts happening? <laughs> it starts breaking the plastic. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to call my neighbor, Michael Chase. And then the faucet looks like it's going to break. I'm like, it's winters, eight degrees outside. Why well, this does not need to happen right now. I do not need to break my faucet, but I've got to get this off of there. And finally, finally, literally, by praying. It went... Do you know why it's on there so tight? The positive way of saying it is oxidation. The negative way of saying it is corrosion. The kind of colloquial term is galling. Not a good word, is it? Gall. You're galled at someone, whatever. It's galling. It's when threaded connections have this sort of microscopic transfer of material. And they sort of harden. They calcify. Right? I looked it up on Wikipedia and it says, it means that you do not lubricate it well. The idea of Pharaoh's heart is a lot like that. Apart from God, our hearts will remain hard. But what does God do? God chooses to show mercy. And God's mercy begins to soften our hearts. And God actually chooses to give us a new heart, what John calls a heart of flesh. He lubricates our heart so that those old corrosive things can start turning again. See, you can try to change on the outside But the thing that changes us is God giving us a new heart and softening our hearts. The question is, when you come to this text, what do you see about God? When I first came to it, and especially to Pharaoh, I started thinking, judgment, judgment. This passage includes judgment. But this passage is about mercy. God's answer to the question, Paul's answer to the question, is God unjust, is mercy. Do you choose to see it? Do you choose to see it? Let me give you two quick little bites out of the Gospels and then one illustration. Y'all know one of my favorite passages is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus... And this pushes us reform people the way I'm going to say this, but he chose to see it. He chose to see it. He was at the bottom. He was blind. He was a beggar. And he hears that Jesus is coming down the road and he starts screaming. And all the well-to-do people are like, be quiet. He doesn't want anything to do with you. But what does he do? He screams all the louder, Son of David... He knew the Old Testament. He knew that the son of David was going to come and bring in a righteousness and a justice and a mercy no king had accomplished. And he cries out, Son of God, Son of David, have mercy on me. He wouldn't let no one stop him. Jesus commands that he be brought to him and he asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? See Bartimaeus chose to see it. Now let me give you someone who chose who was chosen to see it. Y'all know my other favorite passage. Luke 13, there's a woman with a disabling spirit, 18 years she is bent over. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. She's not looking for him. She's not asking to be healed. But Jesus chooses to see her. Jesus chooses to heal her. And when He sees her and He knows her condition, and He's thinking the heartache of 18 years of this, He calls her over and He says, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And then in a moment of great physical mercy, He lays His hands on her, and immediately she straightens up. Why? because she was chosen to see it. Where do we see God's mercy prevail the most? The cross. Everything Paul's been talking about. Where justice and mercy meet, and there's this this sort of contest. What's going to win? Well, judgment has its due, right? Jesus takes all that we deserve. Why? Because we're chosen to be shown mercy. God is saying, You're broke, you're 31, you got five little kids, you're a minister, you'll never go to the BVI. And God says, Baloney. Yes, I almost said something else, sorry. I'm gonna take you and I'm gonna put you over there and I'm gonna give you this beautiful spread. You know why? because someone very, very important in my life said, go. Go. Come. If you don't know that mercy this morning, if all you see and hear is a God of judgment, come to Jesus. If you have received mercy, do you know what Romans chapter 12 says? We're about to turn the corner in a few weeks. Not if you spend forever in Romans 9 for it. But in a few months, just kidding. In a few weeks, we're going to turn the corner. You know where it starts? Chapter 12. You know what the first verse in chapter is? In view of God's mercy, be like this. Live like this. The comfort you've received, comfort others. And if we're honest, sometimes... We get that comfort, we get that mercy, and we get out of the car and we walk into swamps and treat people like dirt. But you know what? Judgment does not prevail for those people. You're still adopted children. Nothing's changed. You're still secure in Christ. Cry out for mercy. Be healed again. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, be people of mercy. God's prevailing characteristic is mercy. Let me close with this story. And yes, I found it once again in my AARP magazine. I was like, it's here. I'm going to find something. And it was there. You may know, have heard of the name Willie Pearl Mackey. Back in the day, she was a young lady. She lived in Atlanta. I think this is like 50s, 60s. AARP didn't say. But she was asked by a friend to work with her at this little small startup called the Southern Christian Leadership. And it was headed up by a young man, sort of an upstart guy named Martin Luther King. She had never heard of him. She had never heard the term civil rights. She was asked to work there. She got the job. She started learning about what he was doing and what they were doing and the Christian, Southern Christian Leadership Group was doing. And eventually they decided to do this people-to-people tour. She was asked to join the team and they were going to go to the state of Alabama and sort of spread the news of what they were doing and trying to do. And the FBI actually told Dr. King, hey, we'd love to help you. And protect you but we cannot guarantee your safety and he was honest with all the people that worked forward including willie pearl and and he said y'all can go home if you want and she said no i'm gonna stay and then on good friday in 1962 dr king was arrested on that trip in birmingham you know why he was arrested a group of eight ministers wrote an article called A Call to Unity, condemning King for being an outsider. You know what they did? They put him in jail. He asked for a pen and paper. He didn't get it. They said, this ain't no library. Somehow he got a pen and he would take scraps of toilet paper, edges of newspaper, sandwich bags, whatever he could get, and he would give them to his friend that would visit. The guy would sneak them out in his coat and they eventually collected all those little pieces and collected them together like a jigsaw puzzle trying to figure out what he wrote and what he was saying. And that is what we call a letter from a Birmingham jail. That man was filled with a sense of God's mercy. And the way he lived his life in contrast to those eight ministers, may that speak to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy to sinners. I don't like to talk about sin all day, and I don't like to talk about how sinful we are. That's not the main point. It is a major sub-point. But Lord, you have shown mercy to a bunch of scoundrels. And God, would we be a people of mercy with the comfort that we have received, with the grace, with the overwhelming love that you have spread a feast for us. May we do that for the Pharaohs, the Jacobs, and the Esau's that you have put in our life.